Welcome to the Next Level Brands podcast, where we share stories about the food and CPG world with experts in the trenches about how to build a successful brand today. Now, your host, G. Stephen Clear. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us today on the Next Level Brands podcast, brought to you as always by the Next Level Brands CPG community. If you have a growing firm in food, beverage, or health and wellness, you should be a part of the Next Level Brands community. Courses, resources, workshops, founder coaching, networking, and a whole lot more. If you're having a challenge with distributors, funding, or promotions, the Community Hub is fully searchable by keyword. It can take you right to the answers you're looking for, or one of our team members can help you find the info. More information available at nextlevelbrands.com. That's next with two X's, nextlevelbrands.com, what you need to know to grow. Hi, everyone. This is Steve Clear. We've got a great show for you today. My guests are Catherine Clark and Paul McDowell, co-founders of Clark McDowell, an independent New York City-based branding agency working with folks like Kind, Weight Watchers, Palmolive, and other brands. Catherine grew up in Paris as a child of parents who worked for the United Nations and therefore absorbed a lot of colorful stories, folklore, and had exposure to a selection of differing beliefs, values, and cultures. Her own passion for creativity, literally making something from nothing, has led her to join forces with Paul to create the agency. She taking the strategy helm, mirrored to Paul's design expertise. Paul, on the other hand, comes from Liverpool, where some musicians you might know grew up. And his passion for creativity as well, only from a design and graphics standpoint, he joined Catherine to form Clark McDowell. It was a marriage of both right and left brain, or as they have coined it, intelligence and imagination. Welcome to the program, guys. Thank you. Thank you for, thank you for having us. So, okay, so Paris, Liverpool. All right, let's just back up real quick. Let the people know, how did you guys find each other? How, what did you do before Clark McDowell? Okay, so, <laughs> so Catherine and I have known each other, gosh, for 23 years. The, how we got into business was we we're actually originally next door neighbors in the East Village of Manhattan. And uh, I think my wife was talking to Catherine over the garden fence, quite literally, about babies, uh, as we both had our, 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 our children around the same time. Catherine's two girls were six months older than my two boys. Our kids ended up going to school the same school together, together and would walk to school together in the neighborhood. But uh, it was a story where, you know, I was working for for an agency, Catherine put in any time, please, where I was working for an agency, dissatisfied with what I was doing, went off to try and do my own thing as a designer. Catherine was running her own New York part of a London agency, more on the vision business side, is that strategy side, was feeling dissatisfied. We literally met sat down on Catherine's sofa and I said well, I'll show you kind of my work my portfolio my thoughts and Catherine had her thoughts and it was just this basically this magic spark of like oh my god this is it this is like I I didn't realize somebody like you existed and and that's why it's not just Catherine Paul it's Clark McDowell it's like bigger than the both of us because it's the some of those things coming together and and you know I will not forget that day when I sat down I was like this person's just incredible. I like. I I never thought I'd go into business, but this is the person I will do it with. Oh, cool. and and Catherine's not going to say no to that, right? I mean, that sounds like a reasonable explanation. It's a great explanation, and it's true. And I think what we did was we were so excited about the spark that was happening between us that we wanted to create an environment where other people who thought differently from each other could come together and solve problems together. So. From the get-go, we really wanted to create an agency that was doing challenging work that required, you know, both creative and strategy. We actively turned down work that was 100% strategy or 100% creative and really focused on creating an environment where people could trust each other, people could collaborate and be empowered to solve problems differently. 
Yeah, and, and you know our observations of the of the industry at the time where things were very siloed. You still get that in certain organizations right now. A, a lot of agencies have shifted, and also internal uh, agencies, clients agencies have shifted the thinking. But there's still a lot of siloing going on. Whereas we, you know, right. this is not about sequentially passing on a brief or sequentially passing on. It's bringing all the right constituents together and really respecting their points of view. And that's where that intelligence and imagination idea has actually come from as well because creatives do not have monopoly on creativity and also strategies don't have the monopoly on thinking you know we all bring as very you know ideas and thoughts to to the conversation and that's the richness of the work at the same time yeah and that's a very that makes for a very creative right environment for people to work in and you know i i remember in in the time that i spent in the trenches in large agencies i came into my first big agency as a copywriter and yeah. you were a copyright, you were creative, right? Yeah. I could have a ponytail. Yeah. <laughs> but when I when I got drafted over to the dark side, to the suits, suddenly it was, and then when I next my next job, I was sitting in my office and I have my typewriter right next to me. My boss comes in and goes, What's that? I said, Well, it's a typewriter. He says, We don't pay you to type, pay you to think. We have a typing <laughs> pool. So, oh, okay, all right. I'll try to get used to that again. And we were so jealous of the guys that worked for Macintosh because they all had the little computers on their desks yeah. at that point yeah. in time. And they could yeah. actually word, word, word processes barely, but that silo thing also exists on the client side too, because right. Marketing and sales. I remember, you know, they never talked to each other very seldom ever. It was like enemies in the camp instead of, Hey, we're all in this together, guys. We got to, we got to work on the work on the brand. So branding in a sense is also fairly new as a discipline, if you will, you know, going, recognizing, I mean, not too many years ago, we didn't even have a tax valuation for brands. Mm-hmm. You know, you had goodwill, but you know, what, what is Campbell's soup actually worth? Well, as it turns out, it's you know, trillions of dollars. How did you start looking for, I mean, did you have some clients from each of your agencies that might've been applicable or how'd you do that, that launch? So I had built some clients in the, in the U S with Unilever and Guinness, mainly doing innovation. And it was really a pragmatic thing because I didn't have any creatives in New York. They were all in the UK. And so it was difficult to use design and fly over literally by plane sometimes for presentations. And so when I met Paul, we already had this this roster of, of work around innovation. What we found is that to get people to think about brand, we had to build relationships both with marketing, but also with creative departments within the organizations and insights team and innovation teams. So we literally got to meet everybody um, in these companies and tried to get work from all kinds of different places because brand work can come from an insights team in the same way it can come from a creative services team. So I think a lot of our focus over the first 10 years was building those relationships and then bringing those people together in a room and letting them experience that thinking together. And they would walk out and go, oh, wow, that was a great thing. You know, usually we get past some kind of brief from marketing we have to execute. Whereas here we were bringing those people that normally are the back end in the front end. And so you build a lot of trust there with the client and and they want to come back and, and, and experience more or take you with them when they leave that company. So our strategy was literally meet everybody that touches the brand somehow um, and build those relationships as quickly as possible. Yeah, and and I think what's also we've tr- really tried hard to overcome is pigeonholing because by definition, human beings want to put people in boxes and, and label them, and it was really difficult because no one, as we called ourselves brand architects, and we're trying to find nobody really understood it. it. Sort of goes back earlier to what you're saying, Steve, about brand and our understanding of brands now 
is not that old, really. We kind of know what brands and branding is, but it was thought it was kind of a product and advertising, and it's way more than that. We know it's much more nuanced, much more sophisticated. We know what the you know the cultural associations that brands and branding have right now as well. So, so as as an industry and a culture, we've 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 you know generation growth the brands and branding. We've got a much more sophisticated understanding of it. And then from an, from our own perspective is. We're branding folks. We're at the heart of all of these things. We're not a design company. We're not an innovation company. We're not a strategy company. We're branding people. And that's the way we've tried to work with with and, and teach our clients on, on how to think about brands and branding. And that has an impact then on the partners that you you actually use and bring and work with as well. Because, you know, because we, we have a look at the whole thing. We see the whole ecosystem. We don't decompartmentalize because that's not the way people see brands. Brands are or, or, you know, the, the relationships where they come lots of different places. It's not a pack and a product and those things. They're not tangible things. It's how you connect with all of those things. And so that's how we've, you know, seen the world. And I think as as folks understand and marketeers start to understand brands in a more sophisticated way, it's really helped us connect more dots within organizations as well. So we are not kind of prey to the siloing as much as we were before or the pigeonholing as we have been. It still goes on. Depends on the organization, but it's not as it's not as, as dramatic as it used to be, I would say. In doing you know, in doing work with now mostly very small or medium-sized brands or companies, you know, I, you go through the process of, you know, a brand is not your logo. Your logo is something, but but when you say brand, people all because of course the logos are kind of indelibly etched. But the concept now, what I what I see from a lot of people working on the outside is the idea of storytelling and how mm-hmm. storytelling relates to the brand. And for a lot of brands, that's great because like guests on this program, they have great stories, but there are tons of brands out there and not to pick on Hungry Jack, but I'm going to pick on him because I used to work for him is there's no story about Hungry Jack. <laughs> Hungry Jack was invented to basically knock off Aunt Jemima from a pedestal. That's it. It doesn't, it, I don't know who came up with the idea or whatever, but it doesn't, it wasn't a farmer out in his field going, God, I just got to have one of those pancakes, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> so there's this whole dichotomy. And the other thing that really seems to come into it now is there's also a lot of mission-based CPG out there. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's that, not uh, not a point of confusion. I'm not saying that. There is a oftentimes a story that doesn't necessarily run parallel with the product line. It's it's the product line is serving a greater need to do something else, and and you have to put that together. But when you guys approach that, do you start with the storytelling elements or the or the architecture? Which, by the way, you can please explain to people because that's a good thing for them to know. Or or how do you balance that? So that's great. I, I love this uh, this point you're making about this this evolution that we've had from telling authentic stories about people behind the brand, which happened a lot in the last 10, 15 years, to this shift towards more purpose-built brands. But not every brand is born to fulfill some kind of bigger mission in the world, right? So, so you know, what do you do when you don't have that 
We always say, you know, you're building relationships. So try and understand the role that you're going to play in somebody's life. So who are you for and why should they care about you? What are you actually bringing to them? Um, And maybe stop thinking less about how you want them to feel about your brand, but more how you want them to feel when they're in a relationship with your brand about themselves. So a brand brings something to someone. It's something that you can adopt that's part of your life, that is part of your identity, something that maybe bonds you to other people. Think about it that way. So what are you going to make? How are you going to make that person feel when they have your brand in their life? Is Is a really good question to ask yourself. I think it's hard for smaller companies because they are often busy developing the product. So they think a lot in product attribute terms because their challenges are supply chain and manufacturing and all of those things. And they may be very proud of some of the breakthroughs that they've made. So they tend to overly focus on the functional. But for a person relating to the brand, that functionality might be important, but really the, the relationship is going to be built if you help create some kind of emotion for them, something meaningful that they can they can feel good about. Paul, I don't know if you have any builds on that. Yeah, yeah. I think a good tangible example might be Patagonia. Mm-hmm. Great products, but you know, awesome, you know, they do. But they 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 stay true to who they are as a brand. Their brand, their their brand character and their values are so, so important to who they are, they are unwavering. Now they could change their logo, they could change their pack, they could do whatever they want to do. But who they are, what they believe in, is 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 stood the test of time, and that manifests itself in lots of different ways through their actions, through some of the little things they stitch into the into the labels for the for the last election, for the you know political stances they take, all the way through to the sustainability of their products, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. So that's what I think Catherine's saying is, is there are, you know, there are things that are, are so central to who you are. And again, you know, Patagonia were like, they were a startup at one time all those years ago. And that's where they said, like, this is what we want to be. This is what we want to stand for. Yeah, we want to sell products, but we want to, to do with that fits these values and those, you know, get extrapolated over time. And that's where, uh, you know, building building a story around what you believe in and then understanding really understanding your role that you play within people's lives and how you fulfill that role in a way with with you know authenticity transparency all those sorts of things and knowing who you're designing for and who you want to build that relationship with is is so important as you go in and that's where you'll create the, the best experience and the deepest and most enduring relationships when when you guys have been working with established brands and i'll i'll, I'll pick on palm olive only because that we mentioned mm-hmm. top show but you don't have to use that because yeah where where do you go into the organization with, is it brand management? Is it senior management? And what are you being called on to do if that brand has already been out there for a hundred plus years? We come in at very different points. So sometimes we come in, most of the time we come in through some strategic thing, like either a marketing person or an innovation person, insights person. In the case of Palmolive, we came in through the design team and we didn't come in through a very senior level. We came in through an old relationship that Paul had cultivated for a long time. And that team had been trying to redesign Palmolive and take it into a more eco-friendly space. And they were they were just hitting a wall. They were struggling. And so it was literally a phone call like, hey, would you guys like to do a round of work? See if you could unblock this. So they didn't commit to the whole job. We came in, 
And we actually brought everybody together because we have, you know, we have a strategic background. We brought the, the very senior folks in from marketing, insights, innovation that hadn't really been as embedded in the process so far and got everybody to align early on as to what they wanted to do. We showed the mood boards and we kind of went back in time. We, we did it fast, but we kind of asked the fundamental questions. And then we were able from there to actually test better than the other work they were testing and, and ended up inheriting the whole job. But sometimes we come in through some funny doors, you know, that aren't what you would expect us going through a big RFP process or something like that. I will say we did we did demand to bring in very senior leaders from the get-go at the key meetings because a lot of times a lot of effort is put into developing work and then it goes up the ladder, down the ladder, and a lot of things get lost in translation. So we wanted to have, you know, the decision makers in the room looking at very scrappy stuff early on. And then after that, it was a beautiful relationship directly with the design team to just basically bring the whole thing to life. Was it, was it that much fun, Paul, mm-hmm. as she say? It was, it, uh, it was, it was, well, he did all the work. So <laughs> it was launched, yeah, it was launched in, uh, it was launched within 72 days, which is kind of unheard of during the, the brief change, the first week of lockdown, <laughs> it launched it. And then that was the packaging. And then from there, we did the rest of the brand world, the, the digital experience and the guidelines and all those sorts of things. So it was fast and fun, I have to say, and they're lovely people. The clients are great, yeah. I have to say. And uh, yeah. And we're still working with them, which is so we didn't oh, that, do too bad. That's very positive. Good. And let's <laughs> keep, keep to your that question up. about the brand being old, I think what we wanted to do was we were, Paul said it was just after lockdown. What we realized is that, yeah, people wanted to go into a more eco friendly space, but they were really worried about germs and efficacy. And they also needed some comfort of stability. So we actually didn't want to move away too far from what Palm Olive used to look like. Because that nostalgia, that sense of stability was actually critical at that time. And then we we tried to bring in some more eco-friendly codes and cues, but without losing that, this stuff's going to work and take the grease off your pants, you know, because ultimately that's what people were worried about. So I think it's a question of honoring what's special about an old brand while making it modern. Whereas when you start something completely new, obviously you don't have any of those. Yeah, of those yeah. And I think it's a great it's a great point as whomever might be listening is creating their own brand and and we call assets, right, or distinctive assets. And distinctive assets become distinctive over time. So for 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 Palmolive, it was the, the the hand and the glass. It felt very old, very relevant. But there was a gem in there. There was something magically locked in that it was it's synonymous with with the efficacy that, you know, it's an equity, right? And so we had that little star, the little ping, the little burst. It was about repurposing. So it said efficacy, but it was about optimism. It was about looking forward. It was about future. So it tied into a different kind of narrative, but was able to repurpose and had a, a deeper, a different meaning without reinventing itself. So if you're building a brand from scratch, sort of, even from a visual standpoint, from an equity standpoint, thinking about equities, ideas that actually do start to have meaning. They could be reflective of your values or reflective of something else. But those are the things that will stand the test of time and evolve. And that will that's where you start to get consistently pulled through your brand. So you're not sort of, you know, you're not sort of trying to fast follow somebody else or or keep changing and swapping. You're giving somebody so you're taking the people on a journey with you as well. Yeah, and that, it, very, very important. So let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum. So clean slate, or you're starting out with a brand that maybe it doesn't even quite have a brand yet. Maybe it's just a product line name or whatever. How do you approach that? 
We've had a few of those, including uh, there was one brand, I think, Le Blanc, which was a, an old client of ours who we had worked with on Rufino wines. And he said, listen, I've created a new business. I've got this amazing cachaça, which is basically a Brazilian rum. I've got it you know, produced and, and I, I want to create a brand. And we were standing on the side of the street, I think, in Manhattan, <laughs> just scribbling some little things on a piece of paper. And I think what we talked about was, was capturing the essence of Le Blanc Beach, which is one of the main beaches in Rio, which has this kind of really special feel to it. So we actually design was a huge part of that because in spirits, you know, the look of the bottle, it's a bit like perfume. It's, it's a, it's a, it says so much. So Paul, I'll let you talk about that, but we started with a feeling and that's what I would say. It's like, how, how do we want this to feel? And then created the, all the visual language and the assets around that. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and the feeling was for this specific one, it was about sensual natural togetherness. So it's an emotional idea that you can then can turn into a, a creative execution, creative idea. So that suggests certain kind of colors. So greens, for instance, very distinct. Uh, the, two, the two brothers, the Dois Mois Mountains became an, a metaphor for the brand to, uh, you know, as people come together, natural togetherness. The typography was bold. It had a masculinity to it, it was reminiscent of painted signs in, in, in Rio, et cetera. So it's uh, it's finding those those emotional hooks that again it's storytelling you know back to what you were saying earlier it's storytelling you just having to whether it's through visuals or through language and usually both is is what you need to but it, it should be an extrapolation of of again what's that emotionality that you want to that you want to sort of convey you know what's the then you turn it into things that are distinctive that hopefully stand out in your in your in your context in your category whether it's spirits or food or peanuts or snacks or juice whatever it might be you want to be able to make your mark and be true to yourself and make sure all of those all of those assets all of those things are pulling together and and you're you're really standing out in, in, great explanation in in the sense of of is it more fun to work with something established and tweak it or is it better to start with something or more fun to start with something you don't, you can kind of just create. No, it's both all fun. fun. Yeah. It's both fun. Okay. okay. I can't pull that out. Yeah. The, the reason is, I think, when you go into a brand transformation, people get frustrated quickly because there's a lot of politics. It takes forever. But if you go in with a different expectation, which is like, whoa, there's a lot of anxiety here about, you know, destroying this thing we've got. And, and if you start to just accept what people are going through, it becomes fun. You have to kind of know that it's going to be a long road. It's going to be a bit more complicated. There's going to be different emotions. But I think there's a default to us. Think brand creation is the most exciting time. It is exciting. But I mean, transforming something like palm olive or, um, you know, I don't know what else we've, we, you know, we want to talk about, Paul, but big iconic brands that have been renovated. That It's, it's just fun on a, on a, on a longer Continuum. Let's talk about Weight Watchers if we can for a minute. That's an example, right? Of trying yeah. to something that is trying to go through a transformation itself and you know and, and is about transformation. So, you know, how did you guys approach that? So we actually mainly did some what I would call insights and strategy work with them, not the actual rebrand to WWs, just to be clear, that was not our work. But we did spend a lot of time trying to understand that you as you were saying about transformation. What are the different emotions that people have when they commit to losing weight or managing their weight and when they fall off and they come back on? 
So a lot of the work that we did was just trying to understand the character of the brand and how people want back to how do how do they want to feel when they engage with the brand? Do they want a drill sergeant? Do they want somebody who's there to support them? Do they want a friend? Do they want so we did a lot of research with different types of people who were going through different journeys of their own to understand what what they need at what time. And that informed everything from the tonality of the brand to the way that you know some of their consultants would speak to their customers and all of those things. Uh, and I think what it highlights, you know, whether you're a startup or whether you're, you know, 40-year startup like Weight Watchers, is, is is really understanding your design target, like who is right, and designing the experience, designing the communications, designing the product, all of those things around them and not assuming somebody is just going to take something because it's a great product and it doesn't necessarily work that way. So, so truly understanding and designing the whole experience around your design target is is is, a, is critical to success. And let's talk for a minute, if we can, about Kindbar. So, uh, what was the work done on Kindbar and stuff? I have a particular interest in the category because at that time I was also Cliff Bar was work. My agency was working with them, so mm-hmm. I, I loved to hear about the about the category. What'd you guys do? Yeah. So for Kind, it was it was what we call an amplified job. So we do three things: we create brands from scratch we transform brands so brands that lost their mojo and we also amplify so this is where brands are, are doing well and you know excelling in lots of ways and then how can we make them you know reach more people so for kind it was less about going off and, and creating more bars they, they've done that if they can do that it was like what other spaces can we can we can we actually mm-hmm. can we get to what's relevant so what so what is magic about kind not just the bar but the brand itself what do people love about it and then how can we make that relevant for other categories? So in this, this instance, it was around the, you know, breakfast, the, the cereal category, which is, you know, a category that is probably not as sexy as it used to be. There's it's getting a little bit forgotten about. So how could we kindify what do we need to do? So it became an innovation project, basically. So, so it, was, it was understanding well, if, if we were to sort of take all of the, the wonderful magic that kind does, whether that's a product, truth, a, a values, truth, etc., and create some breakfast experiences, serial experiences around it. What would those actually be? So we create a bunch of different, of different sort of serial ideas that were, you know, kind and lots and lots of different things. Then building with 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 consumers, we do our own consumer groups. We have the creative and the strategist actually working on the job in there, building live with them and tweaking ideas and and, and hacking ideas. And we created a, a bunch of different propositions, which then, you know, were shopped around to the to their customers. And, and and lo and behold, you know, a year later, Kind Serial hits the shelf. And so Kind is able to go into lots of different places. They've also gone into chilled puddings. They've gone into ice cream bars. They've gone into blah, blah, blah. So you can see how you can take it when you transcend just a product form itself, i.e. the bar. You can actually transcend that if you go to higher order, you're like, okay, we stand for something more than just one form itself. So how can we take that and how can how can we then go into these different spaces? That's where you have your, like I said, your values or maybe a product signature. In that case, it's happened to be you know, sort of nuts and, and clean ingredients. Then you can then you can take it different places. So that's pretty much what we did for those guys. Yeah, it was it, in, in that sense, and they've done a tremendous job, by the way. And you guys did a good job at that because it's uh, it was a, a great foray. Not so far removed from puddings actually is, but the cereal certainly not. Not so far removed from I can bring probably a lot of my audience with me. 
to that category or yeah. back to the category as serial would be exactly. because a lot of those people were no longer in the category. Um, the, the bar was breakfast or, you know, whatever they were doing at, at cliff. It was, there was an interesting thing in that we worked on the introductions of Luna, which was a sub brand aimed at women. Right. And, Love it. and incredibly successful. So successful that marketing figured out that they needed to have a more male brand. And so we launched Mojo. Built Mojo. Yes. Yes. Launched Mojo. And and Mojo was also savory besides other things. So it had cardamom, turmeric, a bunch of other stuff in it. And it was not meant for, it was not, there was no sweetness. There was no whatever. And it was a little bit crunchier and whatever else. Well, lo and behold, so that was doing okay. But lo and behold, so what other parts do I have? And it's like, oh. Children, wait, let's, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. let's let's launch kids. And it was like, okay, Zbar, yeah, yeah, Zbar. <laughs> so you know, you just keep extending. It's like, and then I was waiting. I they were no longer a client by the time, but I, but I was joking one time with the folks at Power Bar of Nestle is that uh, you know we're going to have dog bars pretty soon, right? Because <laughs> I've got every I've got every member of the household. I that is going to be <laughs> grandma bars, you know, or something. But you know, <laughs> it, it, which I'm still with. There should be a senior focused bar. I, I just you know, because all those folks are now who started with bars are now right age 70 plus probably. So, but it is very interesting and that's great. But yeah, the serial aspect of, you know, kind of waking up a, waking up a category and, uh, you know, doing, doing things like that. Very, you know, very important. So do you guys, once you do your presentations or however you manifest this stuff, do you then continue to work with the design group, the packaging group, how do you, how does that relationship maintain? Or you just sort of sign it off and go, okay, guys, hope the interpretation works. So most of the time, you know, we've come in at the beginning, we've done some strategy, we've done some research with them. We've landed an idea. We've come up with how it's going to look. We might roll out the packaging. We might also do an ecosystem. And then we may try, we won't end up doing that advertising and all their social and all of that stuff. That's not what we specialize in, but we do some training with them. So visual and verbal training with their agencies so that if they have other partners, we can go and sort of share some of the key tenets of the brand. With some very small clients, which we don't have many of, we have ventured into doing their website or we've done their social and things like that. But we're not built to do that for large organizations who will go to agencies that specialize in web or social. So, but the training piece is huge for us. Like we end up doing some, Paul was giving a huge share out the other day. I think about 200 people around the globe for this audio brand called JBL that you may may have heard of. Uh, That's That's a refresh. Right. So, yeah, we're taking we're taking it to Gen Zs and changing the whole. T- and it's not out yet. So, but really changing the tonality of the brand, making it relevant to a new generation, and recognizing that some of the people who are actually working with the brand across the globe, maybe they're not so exposed to that youth culture. So, how do we train those people to understand the vernacular of the brand, its tonality, its character, how to use the assets, how to manifest it? So, at minimum, we'll give that type of training, and sometimes we'll go further. Got it. It's interesting because there's, we were discussing the other day, some stuff with generational differences. So your Gen Z's and your Gen X's and whatever else. And we were, we kind of came to a consensus that that whole thing needs to be changed in, in the time when you could take a decade, kind of a decade of boomers. Okay. Pretty much. We all do have some things very much in common, right? And the dividing line, perhaps maybe the tail end boomers, Vietnam was not such a big part of their lives for my age group, a very big part of our lives. 
But other than that, the rest of the stuff kind of stick around. And then, okay, then the next next group, whatever. But the 10 years almost seems with the onslaught of technology and 24-7 stimulation, uh, ads, promotion, or whatever, a five-year difference is now huge. And a five-year difference is the difference between somebody who knows how to write cursive and somebody who has no idea what the hell cursive is. And, and, and thumb, faster on thumbs than they are on the typewriter. It, it, it's almost as if we need to kind of cut that back and go, you know what? I, I think not, it's not because it used to be childbearing age, right? That was part of the thing. It was like, now that doesn't make any difference right now. But literally children who are five years in difference between, let's just say eight and 13, they're not going to have a lot in common. That's the other thing is that we have cohorts and then we have also points in time. So we've had millennials, but when millennials start making babies, they're not the same as when they were 17, unless they start having babies at 17. But I think there's a there's an intersection there between the generation and then the times that we're in that we're all experiencing. The big thing we take from Gen Z, other than brands that are targeted at a certain age group, which is, you know, sometimes happens, it's more that their values are shaping the rest of society. So we're seeing those themes around fluidity and inclusion and optimism and all of those things and realism and re- rejecting perfectionism, all of those things permeating us Gen Xers because we're parents of Gen Zs and also affecting millennials because they're also looking for what's hip and what's cool and that's no longer coming from them. So I think there's there's a sense of trying to understand a generation, not just for who they are, but what are the big shifts that they're actually creating in our society? We just did a a big project with Enfamil, Baby Formula. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're talking millennials and we're like, hang on, let's just look at the Gen Zs because they're starting to have children. And by the time we make changes to this brand, they will be the next parents. So their values and their things that matter to them are actually influencing the entire way that brands need to come come to life. Uh, Being more conscious of who we present, how we present them, being more inclusive, making sure that we have more meaning behind what we do, being more transparent, not being, not glorifying things and putting beautiful pictures of wonderful women holding their babies in perfect situations. They don't, they don't, they don't want to see that. So I think, um, you know, we're seeing it more in terms of the shifts that it creates in, in culture. The, the technology has also allowed us to have you spoke earlier of relationships with the brand and a lot of brands, a lot of companies in CPG in health and wellness, were not prepared to have a relationship with their consumers. <laughs> that was not built. In. The customer service department was for handling complaints. The idea that you would have a dialogue on your Facebook page with a woman in Des Moines who thinks that your packaging is not sustainable never occurred to anybody in, in a Fortune 1000 CPG company. That's just like unheard of. And now it exists. And by the way, don't ignore her because she has followers and she will pick up followers. You need to be present. You need It's a relationship that goes, goes both ways. Paul, how has, how has the graphics, the colors, topography, all the other things, how has that evolved? In, in, in recent times. So technology is a, technology has, has dictated, I'm holding my phone up for those that can't see, has dictated how colors are used. So obviously things are becoming more simple, the more refractive, refracted, more vibrant, more simple. So ideas, what rather than having sort of a lot of extraneous elements, we're really trying to boil things down because it needs to pop in a very small space You'll be able to see instantly and you need to be able to understand, you need to be able to recognize, but also sometimes relate 
a story or an idea very, very, very quickly. So it's what used to just be either the package on the shelf, which is still important, but it's it's just one part of it, or just the ad is has completely shifted. So when we look at when we when we're creating visual guidelines, we'll we'll we have to consider the entire ecosystem and how it's going to work. And that translates to we're not living in a static world anymore. We're living in a in a world that moves, that's fluid, that's that's that sort of you know has life. And so so we, we have to think more in a in a in a in a animated world or dynamic world as well. Things can change when AI Gonna, is going to hit stride. That is, this is going to change the whole game again. We're going to be more pointed. You're going to be able to probably be able to sort of influence how you want a brand to be seen. I can imagine that's going to happen. And so, even back to your earlier point on on how technology has 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 impacted that relationship. You know, in some some ways, if you think about a a a, a consumer person that you know they're they're they're, they're they're posting on their Instagrams. They are influence. They are they are in some ways the brand owners. So they, there's an inversion in the relationship. In ah. Some ways it's not it's not just a reciprocal relationship. Now in some ways they can actually have great influence and and influence how you need to respond to a situation, how you need to show up, your values, your innovation, whether it's sustainability or whatever it is, how you show up on you know with the kind of imagery that you that you use so it goes beyond just obviously because of the graphics but but also how the brand represents itself as well and the actions that it has so there is a a, a greater sort of there is there is actually a, a, been a massive shift so i think there's lots of things going on there with regards to the bias the relationship and then i think you know in terms of the second part of the question the impact on on the visual is is obviously being huge, and it's going to change again when technology shifts and changes, and it's going to be pretty dramatic, we think. So on the virtual side of things with AI, we can put the person on the beach in Brazil with the mountains there and maybe make them a little spray in their face or something. Exactly, exactly. And you're probably going to want to say, I, I want to be in this situation. I want to see this person. And you're, you're probably going to be able to call a shot. So a brand, in theory, a brand could show up in the way that you want it to show up. Which means that you have like ultimate, ultimate say. Now, that's a that's a a, a you know a, a guess and an extrapolation whether that actually happens or not, but it could happen. There's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity right now. I think one of the things because you mentioned Paul about that is that's one of the reasons that emerging brands, challenger brands, disruptors are having a real field day out there versus the huge people in the category mm-hmm. because the people in the category can't respond fast enough. They don't have the relationship, and a lot of them are, are, aren't listening. Like I remember working with brand managers. And you remember when when a person got a, a brand manager position of a you know whatever, not a billion dollar, but five hundred million dollar brand. All you wanted to do was not screw it up. <laughs> That's all. Okay. Yeah. The main thing was you know whatever, and and you'd make you'd make some you'd refresh the packaging. I was always like, "That's cool. We can refresh the packaging, whatever else." But the truth of the matter is, is I need just just make the numbers of whatever. The person be brand manager before we made, and then we're going to move forward. So it was a lot there. There was a lot of that, but it was very different. And now you have a situation where you will have a challenger brand that comes out, and it it maybe speaks to a generational difference or whatever, or they highlight some aspect of what they're doing, like uh, you know sustainability, which <laughs> is which mm-hmm. is huge and gets gets larger. When a Walmart sits down with suppliers and says, "You need to give us a sustainability report," that's serious. 
Exactly. Yeah. And I think what when you asked about whether it's fun, funner to work on a small brand or a big brand, and both are, what can happen on a big brand is sometimes they're facing a, a cliff. They're like, oh my God, we are going to get our butts kicked by all these newcomers. Right. Um, and that's when it's fun because the the that idea of I can't screw it up changes into if I don't change right now, nothing's going to happen and I'm going to go down that cliff. So I think Palmolive wasn't necessarily in that situation, but we worked with a brand at Mars called Nutra. It was a pet food brand. They were oh, a pioneer of, of like natural pet care and they got completely complacent and let Blue Buffalo kind of eat their lunch. Mm-hmm. And so when we worked with them, we ended up transforming the brand completely. I mean, if you looked at the design over the last five years, it has, and they went from double digit decline to growth again, but they were very willing to let everything go and start again. So that's when, that's when brand transformation is fun is when, when the brand managers, the CMOs realize, well, we need to embrace change because we're going, you know, we're going, we're going down the path. I remember a great presentation from the folks at Cadillac one time at, in Los Angeles at a press briefing and the guy showed the, it wasn't, yeah, it was a press briefing, but it wasn't. It wasn't a press conference. It was a group of journalists. And he showed this, this trend line of age and the average age of a, of a Cadillac buyer. And he says, so what do you think this chart represents? And one of the guys held up his hand and said, it represents the fact that you're out of business in 20 years. Yeah. You know? So it's yeah. like, and then sure enough, Cadillac had already started on this idea of trying to smaller cars, younger audiences, whatever. It's very, very important. Well, listen, hey, I really appreciate so much you guys taking this time and chatting with us today. Branding is so important. Uh, if you're, you know, $500,000 company or 5 million, uh, 50 million, doesn't matter. Brand is, is super important. We do punish our guests as, mu- as much as we can by trying to get them to extol some advice and counsel to fellow entrepreneurs out there. We call it words to grow by. Uh, and you guys have been so gracious for both of you to be here that you get two. So awesome, Paul. You go first. So, so Paul, you want to you want to line it up? Yeah, it's something that I, I I like is Simon Sinek, which I'm sure a lot of folks are, are know Simon knows work at least. But leaders eat last is 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 something I, we believe in. Kind of a credo, which is is around putting. You know, we rely on the teams, we rely on the people that do what we do. Right. And and it's really important to sort of provide support and really be thoughtful about those people because if if everybody else does well, uh, yeah. you know, they're, they're in a good place, we all do well. So that's that's really kind of a big part of our philosophy at CM, which is is again, it's not just about Catherine Paul, everybody pleasing us. It's about making sure that the whole team feels supported, that they feel energized, that they feel positive, that you know, we're trying to remove as many barriers for them as possible. Do we get it right all the time? Of course we don't, but that's the that's the intent, you know, and it's always that desire to to shift and change. And I think there's a, there's something about the psychology of that and that sort of positive building and being able to overcome issues together and being resilient together because everyone feels supported. So that's uh, that's my little excellent my little uh, great great spiel. advice for sure. So Catherine, mine is be true to your heart, and that's really about the fact that brands have a a role to play in society and they actually have the ability to make things good. So if there are things that you care about, things that are meaningful to you that you can bring to the table, be true to your heart, put it into your brand 
I was very honored to be in a, a, a small group conversation with Michelle Obama through Chief, which is a, a group of executive women. And that was yeah. on Tuesday this week. And she talked very much about being, being authentic to what you believe and bringing that to your work and letting those values permeate through your actions. So I would say that to these new business leaders, if they have things they care about, even if it has nothing to do with the product that they're selling, let that come through. We need it. Awesome. Mm-hmm. That's great. Great advice from both of you and a very insightful show. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I uh, would love to talk to you down the road after you've tackled some more brands and, and uh, talk about how branding has evolved. So we can do that. Thank you so Good. much. Thanks a lot. And by the way, thanks to everyone else out there for joining us today on the Next Level Brands podcast. Our podcast is sponsored by the Next Level Brands community. More information available at nextlevelbrands.com. That's next with two X's. Our producer is Deborah Armstrong. Our production assistant is Consolata Wakuka. We're always grateful for feedback and comments we get. If you have an idea for the show or maybe a special guest you'd like to hear from, feel free to reach out to us. And if you're enjoying the show, please follow us. Take a minute to subscribe, but most important, refer us to your friends. After all, the more, the merrier. I'm Steve Clear. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Next Level Brands podcast with G. Stephen Clear. Learn more at next with two X's, levelbrands.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Next Level Brands email list or subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode.